Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I'd like to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations tackle important broadband issues, getting broadband everywhere it needs to be. Uh, we're in for a great discussion today on how TV white space and unlicensed spectrum may influence deployment of broadband and also uh, broadband's impact on communities. We have two great guests today, both of whom have extensive expertise um, in spectrum issues as well as a good understanding of national policies that address these issues. Leading off will be um, Harold Feld, who is Senior Vice President and Legal Director of the Public Advocacy Group Public Knowledge, and then he'll be followed by... Edgar Figueroa, who's president and CEO of the Wi-Fi Alliance. Harold, welcome to the show, and thank you for being a guest today. Thank you for having me. All righty. So we've had an interesting day of uh, panelist sessions, and before I get to the some of the heart of the uh, questions I want to ask about, you know, TV white space and what that means to people who are building broadband networks. I'd like to get like your take on today in terms of what you thought of the, you know, what people had to say and. Well, what I thought was exciting about what people had to say is just how incredibly fast this area is changing, and just people are really now hitting the stride and seeing the possibilities in the open shared spectrum, which includes the TV white spaces and traditional Wi-Fi and uh, a number of other things. And, you know, not just here in the United States, but also just around the world, um, we are seeing, you know, people be uh, insanely inventive uh, with this stuff, using it for uh, uh, all kinds of interesting networking uh, operations, and you know, seeing major players in uh, the uh, uh, the traditional carrier world who either thought they were never going to get into this space, like the cable companies, mm -hmm. or um, people who thought that uh, you know this stuff was their mortal enemy, like the telephone companies and the wireless <laughs> companies, um, really starting to see that you know this stuff is a tool and embracing it, uh, and uh, you know that's just uh, uh, that's just been very exciting for somebody who can uh, remember back to when uh, uh, the idea that um, you were going to do anything with this uh, uh, with this Wi-Fi stuff was you know just laughed at and. Serious policy circles. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. So, for the average um, broadband project team, uh, community stakeholder, you know, people who maybe understand the basics of broadband, they clearly understand why they want it, but they may not necessarily be, you know, full-on techie, geeky person. Mm -hmm. um, what is TV white space? I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, you know, the the short answer is. Um, and, and the best description I think I ever heard of this was people used to refer to it as Wi-Fi on steroids. Um, we're talking about opening up uh, the space uh, on the TV uh, dial that is the empty space, the stuff that doesn't have uh, a television channel on it. And uh, that set of frequencies is very good for uh, wireless data, mobile data. Uh, and uh, for for reasons that you know don't have to worry about uh, uh, in order to understand that uh, what happens when you take things like Wi-Fi and move it into these new frequencies is 
you can set up systems much more cheaply. The signal penetrates walls and uh, uh, and leaves and other things that are a problem in the traditional uh, uh, Wi-Fi bands. Um, the signal travels farther with less energy, which means you need to uh, have a lot, uh, spend a lot less on equipment uh, for uh, a standard deployment. Uh, and uh, you can get a lot of information in the signal uh, so that uh, you can use these things incredibly efficiently when you're trying to do uh, data. So, um, you know, what this is going to do is um, let you do anything you can do right now um, with, uh, with Wi-Fi or other kinds of open spectrum, but better and cheaper. Right, okay. Which dovetails with pretty much what I'm hearing from a number of uh, folks. I think where the leap has been is, uh, you know, this is all, it's being talked about more probably in the last few months, partly because of FCC policies and whatnot. Right. But, I mean, you know, basically it is that when you turn on the TV, you know, you have a, a show on Channel 3 and a show on Channel 10, and somewhere between 3 and 10, every dial just gets a lot of snowy white stuff. And so, if I'm understanding this correctly, that snowy white stuff is, is a frequency that can be tapped into to transport data. Right, I mean, that's right. Yeah, the, the thing is, TV is actually a very old technology, and when we set it up, you had to set it up so that you created a lot of empty space so that television channels wouldn't interfere with each other. Right. Uh, so um, now we are at a place in the technology where we say, you know what, a TV channel is a 50,000-watt huge transmitter beaming stuff down to a television set, you can, in that empty space between the channels, um, you, know, you can put a lot of very low power stuff and have it talking to each other in a way that doesn't interfere with watching the TV. Mm -hmm. So, you know, with such a terrible need for opening up more wireless capacity, mm -hmm. uh, this has become uh, a way that, uh, um, that uh, we are just going to improve um, the overall spectrum efficiency and you know, bring out for folks um, new capacity uh, and really jump this up a level. Somebody here was talking about this as 5G um, unlicensed. Uh, the new generation of technologies, which includes not just TV white spaces, but a number of other advances um, in uh, uh, in open spectrum, and uh, uh, you know this stuff is really going to uh, um, you know the difference between uh, this stuff uh, and the stuff we've got now is like the difference between cell phones in you know 1997 and 1998 and smartphones today. Okay, so you do see it as being a uh, when fully realized, it'll, it'll it'll be a quantum leap in, in in some respects. I mean, maybe to ground it in general broadband terms. I mean, I think we, where we are now is people understand uh, building point-to-multipoint uh, -point, mm -hmm. from a wireless side. They understand laying cable in the ground in order to get uh, fiber, you know, fiber in the ground in order to get. Uh, higher speed um, broadband and 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 so forth. And there's costs associated with each. In practical terms, what's the difference between, say, a net a broadband project uh, having access to TV white space and not having that access? Right. Well, let me answer that in in a couple of different ways. When we're talking about in rural areas, um, what this does is, first of all, let you cover more area because the signal travels farther mm -hmm. uh, and um, you can um, just push signal much further um, 
with much less um, worry about signal degradation um, and uh, can achieve um, significant improvements in the overall speed uh, of download. So whereas before, if you were a wireless uh, ISP trying to uh, provide uh, in an area, um, uh, this is going to drop your deployment costs significantly. Mm -hmm. um, it is going to open up in rural areas in particular, there's a lot of this unused white space. So you are going to open up for the first time really big blocks of spectrum um, where you know, we can talk about things like LTE networks that work on unlicensed uh, spectrum. So it's going to be much cheaper to get the same kind of um, data quality that um, you know, the, the networks like Verizon and AT&T are talking about uh, bringing in their uh, uh, license deployments. Uh, and finally, there, there's the factor that um, uh, this penetrates things like trees uh, and uh, works uh, has different contours with the terrain so that uh, a lot of problems you have now with people who are trying to do deployment where you have thick tree cover um, or where you're trying to uh, work around uh, various kinds of terrain uh, issues, um, because of the nature of this, uh, uh, of the, the TV band spectrum that's now going to be available, um, it, a number of new solutions will be opening up uh, for those kind of uh, network architectures. Mm. And in urban areas, uh, uh, it's actually going to be uh, a little different. Um, for one thing, you have less available open white space. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're operating next to an active TV channel, the power that you're able to use drops significantly. Um, so there will certainly be a lot of advantages for mobile devices and for people uh, uh, who are trying to set up um, routers in, uh, um, in inside in buildings where um, uh, if you have some of these older, thicker buildings, uh, you have to uh, uh, put a router in every uh, room uh, because this stuff will penetrate through walls much more easily. Um, you'll be able to cut down on, on that kind of deployment cost. Uh, but really what where this makes a difference is um, it works with the change in the uh, architecture that the uh, uh, the license carriers are, are doing. Everybody's talking about we're going to move to small cell. Um, and what that means is it used to be when you were Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, you know, T-Mobile, the way you set up these the cellular networks in cities is you have these big towers. Right. Um, and you have cell sectors and you sectorize them and, and you know, but you put these big towers and then you have high capacity lines that go to the towers, the pole, the, uh, um, uh, you know, the data uh, off to the cloud and, and return data to the tower. All of that's changing because the there just isn't enough license spectrum for the wireless carriers to be able to keep up. Mm -hmm. So what they're talking about now is moving, instead of having a number of big towers, talking about moving to a lot of little towers that are spread out along fiber lines in the city, uh, along cable lines, uh, along all kinds of leveraging a lot of existing architecture that's already there. And instead of a device looking for a tower that may be um, you know, a distance away and hitting that, it looks for a small tower, a small cell, very close by, um, and moves quickly from wireless 
into the uh, uh, into the wireline structure. So uh, for people who are trying to deploy uh, networks with no license, uh, um, uh, with no license spectrum, and just leveraging on the TV uh, uh, white spaces and other forms of open spectrum, uh, you're going to be able to take advantage of this architecture. This is, you know, um, there, there's companies like uh, um, uh, Republic Wireless and, and a number of others that are look for open Wi-Fi access points first, and only then look to uh, to find uh, uh, license spectrum that they lease from uh, other carriers. Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, and once these high capacity lines are out there and there's a business in leasing access to those, um, then it becomes possible for people who are setting up their own networks in low-income uh, neighborhoods uh, in urban areas um, where um, you can uh, set up these uh, lower-cost uh, um, alternative networks uh, and uh, take advantage of this uh, change in uh, how wireless networks generally are being constructed. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk about what's real and what's hype. I mean, back in the Muni Wi-Fi days when that started, everyone assumed Muni Wi-Fi was going to be, you know, better than the discovery of gold, that everything, you know, was going to change and so forth. But the people making those claims and, and projections were often politicians, but not technologists who really didn't understand how the technology worked. In time, as in over the, you know, after the first year or two of severe hype, followed by spectacular failures as businesses with bad models went kaput, Governments realized, okay, there is a very real value in Wi-Fi for government use. And they then started to use it for you know, managing their human resources and their other resources. With white space, with, uh, with TV white space, you know, we sort of understand what the promise is, but what's the, what's the reality? I mean, what are the real limitations of this? Yeah, well, here's, um, you know, here's where it gets very interesting. In terms of what are the real limitations, um, Obviously, we have to get a lot more deployment under our uh, belt to find out uh, how well this stuff works in the field. Right. Um, you know, it's important to remember because this stuff was so long in getting approved um, that really we didn't get the rules settled down to a point where uh, uh, people could actually start building devices and getting them certified uh, by the FCC uh, until uh, um, you know at the end of 2010. It's only been now a year and a half. Um, since uh, uh, we had the rules straightened out and we're already getting devices to market, which is actually a pretty good track record on development. Uh, but, uh, and you know, the plain truth is it's going to be deployed first in the, in the uh, rural areas where it's going to be easier to, uh, to do mm -hmm. um, and where you can build uh, uh, more of the equipment. So, uh, you know, it's going to take us a little time to shake it out. Uh, what makes this look like more than some kind of flash, you know, uh, like uh, broadband over power lines or something like that that everybody gets real excited about and then it doesn't pan out is, first of all, the, the actual technology itself is pretty solid. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's, you know, with Wi-Fi what happened was it turned out that Deploying a mesh network that was just as good as a uh, uh, as a cable uh, broadband network in your city, like that was hard and much more expensive. Right. Um, but when you're talking about, I'm going to take this stuff and plug it in to uh, networks in the same way that I'm using 
Wi-Fi now, and it's just going to be kind of bigger and more pumped up, um, then that's a lot easier to see how that can all work and fit together. Uh, you know, there's, uh, um, yeah, in terms of uh, um, the technology, it seems to be working. Um, the, yeah, uh, and there's, uh, um, there's a lot of interest in making it work. There's a lot of interest from big players in the private sector. The cable companies have realized that uh, um, they've got uh, a future in Wi-Fi. Uh, and uh, uh, when you have uh, those kinds of companies, the companies that are willing to spend billions of dollars on deployment uh, of these technologies, uh, you get a lot more um, investment in the engineering side. And I think uh, that's what we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. And so it should Will we then potentially have fewer uh, bumps in the road than we did with the Muni Wi-Fi rise and crash? Yeah, because this is, this is not dependent on a particular business model. Okay. Part of the problem with the Muni Wi-Fi movement and how that ended up um, was that there wasn't anything wrong with the technology of Wi-Fi. There wasn't anything wrong with the technology of mesh. There were a bunch of underlying assumptions about a business model that turned out to be wrong. Mm -hmm. It turned out it worked fine. It was just more expensive than people thought. It also was that by the time people got their act together, the cable networks had upgraded to a point where, you know, what you were trying to do with Wi-Fi couldn't compete, you know, with cable on the business models that people were talking about. Mm -hmm. This is not about a business model. You know, even if one set of providers you know, don't invest, um, if it turns out that the cable guys don't build it out into their Wi-Fi networks, it's still the case that companies like Sprint are going to incorporate it into their new small cell architecture. And even if they don't, um, you know, do it, there are going to be other companies uh, because the voracious demand for new um, new wireless capacity, uh, particularly unlicensed capacity, which is so easy to deploy, uh, is so great. So, you know, in Muni Wi-Fi, it was like, well, you know, people thought you could get a provider like Earthlink to come in and unwire your city for free, and it would all be ad-supported. You know, so when that business model went bust, um, you know, it unfortunately gave the technology a bad name. In this right. case. What we've got is a technology, and that seems to be on track. And as long as the technology continues to uh, um, to develop, uh, the business models will follow. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we talked about the you know the overpromise of Muni Wi-Fi. Isn't one of the challenges of wireless, uh, in other words, your ability or a community's ability to get the speed that they had hoped for? has to do with how many people use or are in the vicinity of a particular cell tower. So if, or in this case, a radio transmitter. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have, I don't know, a one transmitter for ever, every so many quarter miles or half mile or whatever, um, if you get, you know, 2,000 people in that area, it's going to be a very different outcome than if you have 100. I mean, how significant is the well, that's presence why, of radio? Well, that's why we're 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 talking about moving to this small cell model, and um, you know, part of the the problem with 
uh, the wireless uh, capacity and the, the way that the interference uh, uh, works when you start to have more people using it is you get these congestions at the node when you have lots and lots of people trying to uh, um, to uh, um, you know to use a uh, a tower and when their devices are always on and the demand stays up uh, one of the things that help one of the ways in which TV white spaces help solve that problem is it makes it possible to move certain types of traffic that are not very, that are not that are you know more uh, robust that are tolerant of latency that can handle um, the wait for uh, the congestion to clear to make the to make the connection and shift those to the uh, to the open networks that helps to keep the other traffic the stuff that needs the interference protection that needs greater management uh, on the license networks and by distributing the traffic among these different networks um, we help to ease the congestion overall and this is um, you know you're going to need more uh, more radio receivers sure but once this becomes as cheap as Wi-Fi because it's open and unlicensed um, it becomes possible to put a lot of radios out there that connect right away to uh, existing uh, fiber or existing cable uh, uh, plant uh, and clear up that congestion in a way that uh, uh, we couldn't do under uh, the previous architecture. Okay. So let's uh, shift gears for a little bit and talk about policy. It seems that there are a couple of policy decisions up in the air being talked and negotiated and whatever else happens over at the FCC that could have a significant impact on the success of the use of um, TV white space. What are one or two of these main, I don't know, issues, uh, and what do you think is going to be the outcome for those? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's very unfortunate because I, I, I like to say that, you know, people say dinosaurs had two, some big dinosaurs had two brains, one in their tail and one in their head, and they, you know, had problems communicating with each other. Um, we've got this problem in Washington, D.C., where there's like the business brain that's outside in the real world where all kinds of exciting stuff is happening, and the lobbyists and the policymakers in D.C. who are really, you know, kind of out of touch with the, the the, the newer developments and don't understand, uh, you know, what the value is. So um, we've had a lot of uh, uh, fights where as we are trying to clear new spectrum um, capacity uh, for uh, broadband use uh, and we have this debate constantly of like, well, should you try to clear it for, you know, exclusive licensed use so that you can auction that off uh, and you know, give more to Verizon and AT&T and the rest of them, and you know, or should you leave some of that and give more of that also for the unlicensed side, so that you can do more with Wi-Fi and these other uh, technologies? Uh, we had this fight with uh, something called the incentive auctions, which oh, people yeah. may have heard of, mm -hmm. um, and uh, this goes back to the well the broadcast spectrum, the stuff that the broadcasters are still using, is very, very good for mobile broadband. So wireless carriers have wanted to clear out more of that so that you could auction it. We did this when we did the digital television trans, uh, transition. Um, we sold off a whole bunch of stuff that used to be channels 52 through 69. Um, and 
one of the solutions that wireless carriers have been pushing and that a, a lot of people in Washington were very fond of was clear out more of the spectrum from broadcasters and sell that off to wireless companies. So obviously, as if you clear out more channels, um, that shrinks the amount of empty white space that's available for unlicensed use. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had uh, a lot of uh, um, debate back and forth and the compromise that uh, Congress came up with in the, uh, um, in the uh, uh, spectrum bill that passed was that we're going to do this incentive auction thing, which is very complicated and it's not clear at all whether it's going to work or not. Uh, but if um, three years from now the Federal Communications Commission is successful uh, in getting a bunch of broadcasters to turn in their licenses and, and we have this auction, then when they convert that space over uh, to, uh, uh, to licensed use, um, you can manage it in a way that would also allow you to preserve some of the unlicensed use uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the guard bands. Now, this is all very, very nebulous because nobody knows if the incentive auctions will work, nobody knows how much spectrum would be created, nobody knows how the FCC is going to balance these things out. Um, so that creates a whole bunch of uncertainty, which is bad for development. Um, on the other hand, um, there's a lot of opportunity, uh, not just here in the United States, but there are a number of other countries that are looking at this. Um, you know, we heard today from uh, uh, folks in England uh, um, where uh, the UK has become uh, really very big on, uh, uh, on wanting to open up uh, their TV white space. Um, there are a number of other countries that are looking at it, so the technology uh, is going to get used. Um, the question is whether, you know, the United States is going to keep its edge uh, and going to be, you know, the, the home of this, uh, uh, you know, next generation wireless technology or whether we're going to, uh, uh, you know, let it fall by the wayside and, uh, you know, let other countries uh, uh, take the lead. Um, the other big policy point uh, is the federal government has a lot of spectrum allocated for federal use. Uh, and it has been a, you know, the, the wireless carriers have, you know, pushed since uh, forever to get federal users cleared out mm -hmm. um, so that uh, you could auction off more of that. The problem is we've cleared out everybody who could be cleared out. Yeah, the, the, everything, clearing more federal users and moving them around is expensive, it's hard um, at this point. The people who have, the agencies that have that spectrum are, you know, the Department of Defense, um, the Federal Aviation Administration, not agencies that you can shove around easily. Right. Uh, and so now there's finally been kind of a realization of maybe instead of trying to take this federal spectrum away from them, we ought to build on this TV white spaces technology, mm -hmm. which is about sharing spectrum with, you know, licensed users and others, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, build on that and start looking at that uh, uh, to share uh, federal spectrum. Excellent. Well, this has been extremely informative. I appreciate your time and your insights. I know you have a lot of... Uh, irons in the fire here and so forth so you know your your time spent here is much appreciated and you have a you have a blog right so
something about the sausage? Fest? Yes, I do. Uh, thanks very much. Um, uh, I uh, write about this at uh, uh, www.wetmachine.com on a blog called Tales of the Sausage Factory. Uh, as in, people who love sausages uh, and respect the law should not watch either being made. Where I try to, <laughs> try to explain a little about how uh, all this stuff happens. Uh, I also, Public Knowledge also has a policy blog where uh, I and uh, uh, other folks of Public Knowledge cover this, and uh, um, you know, we, we do our best to try to keep folks informed about what's going on. Excellent. Well, good luck to you, and again, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye. Now let's bring in Edgar Figueroa to give us some perspectives from uh, Wi-Fi Alliance. Edgar, welcome to our show today, and thank you for being here with us. My pleasure. So let's jump right in. Uh, this has been actually a very good conference today with lots of ideas flying around and viewpoints and so forth. To make um, maybe one point to kind of clear up early, a lot of the articles that write about TV white space refer to it as super Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. And in so, with some of the other people that I've talked to, there's a general, like a certain amount of discontent or discomfort with using the word super Wi-Fi. So if I look at TV white space and I look at Wi-Fi, what's the difference between the two? Or is one a subset of the other? Or, or how do we get to super Wi-Fi even in the first place? Uh, it may be a mystery where the moniker came from, uh, but uh, to be clear, Wi-Fi is one of a number of technologies that run on 2.4 or 5 gigahertz. Mm -hmm. And uh, white spaces is another uh, series of bands, another series of frequencies that are available. Mm -hmm. It's still undetermined what technologies will make use of those uh, frequencies. So and it's very early in the history of uh, white spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, so our, our position has been that we prefer, uh, in the Wi-Fi industry, that we prefer that uh, for white spaces uh, at this uh, stage we would not use a moniker like super Wi-Fi for a number of reasons, but principally uh, the reasons are that uh, it's, it's really unfair um, for that early market um, to have an expectation uh, to have it compared to probably the most successful unlicensed uh, technology that, that's Wi-Fi. Okay. And then on top of that, to uh, put a superlative next to it is setting an expectation that's going to be really hard to hard to meet. So that's one reason is is you know we we should let that industry come up with its own moniker, and uh, there, there may in fact be a number of different technologies that run over white spaces, mm -hmm. and they, there may be a number of different names. In fact, the Wi-Fi Alliance itself has. Uh, an initiative uh, to uh, bring about interoperable white spaces technology. But there may be others, just like in 2.4 we have Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, garage door openers, a, a number of technologies, right? Uh, we, we should allow that marketing white spaces to figure itself out before we name what will run over it. Okay. Uh, separately, there's probably one even more important reason that uh, we, we shouldn't use that moniker, and that's uh, that it confuses the consumer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so right now there's uh, a, a few trials that are running where proprietary solutions are being deployed over white spaces, mm -hmm. and sometimes they're referred to as super Wi-Fi. Uh, but the reality is those are those solutions are a proprietary, uh, b they don't interoperate nor will they interoperate with Wi-Fi. Mm, okay. So we're, we're setting the, an expectation with the public that somehow their Wi-Fi gear is going to interoperate. In uh, 
in a white spaces environment or in a super Wi-Fi environment, but uh, consumers will not be able to go out and buy devices or get their current devices that are Wi-Fi enabled to work in white spaces. So uh, there's a number of issues like that that mm -hmm. we need to be cognizant about, and so um, we prefer that we just ref uh, refer to those frequencies for what they are, which is white spaces frequencies. Okay, now I got you. So, and that kind of plays into a question I like to ask some folks, which is, you know, what are realistic <coughs> expectations uh, for using this, uh, this, this TV white space? Uh, in terms of applications, that means well. In terms of you know, we're we're talking about improving broadband in rural areas and small towns. But what does that improvement mean? In other words, one of the reasons you said you know we don't want to use super Wi-Fi, we don't want to put this superlative and create an expectation that this is going to be the same as or Wi-Fi on steroids, is, which is which I've actually seen in print. So what are like realistic expectations? If I'm in an area where someone has deployed a network, at least at this juncture, uh, what, what should I expect to be the end result? Right, so let me, uh, let me start with a disclaimer that uh, I'm certainly no expert on white spaces, but uh, like I mentioned, some of our membership is interested in this space and there's some work going on, not just in the Wi-Fi lines, but in IEEE also mm -hmm. with 802.11af. Um, and the, I think the, the main benefit that we would like to uh, leverage from, from these frequencies is that uh, the propagation is much better than anything that you could get out of today's Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps uh, three times or, or more the service area. And uh, currently the service area for Wi-Fi, we usually refer to um, uh, as about a couple of football fields in in area right. or whole home coverage, but it's much bigger than that, much uh, uh, farther than that mm -hmm. uh, with uh, white spaces, simply because of the physics of the frequencies involved, and, and so that's why folks feel like there's a great opportunity for broadband in rural areas. Um, I, I would like to just say a few words about still some of the obstacles that need to be addressed before we could have. Uh, what today's consumer understands as broadband, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, you know probably um, uh, speeds that we we don't yet have or can rely on from um, from TV white spaces, uh, and so among those are first of all that the um, the spectrum allocation that we have for white spaces today is slivers of uh, bands that are available separated by you know uh, by uh, large swaths of spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, ideally, in order to deliver to broadband, we would have to have uh, uh, contiguous uh, uh, frequencies mm -hmm. and uh, wider channels for those frequencies. So um, with that, we could employ some of the techniques that we've already learned and, and, uh, and delivered in the Wi-Fi industry, such as uh, channel bonding, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so we don't have that yet. That's a that's a big obstacle because it would require um, a bit more government action. Mm -hmm. um, another uh, area that uh, is still somewhat significant is to standardize technologies that would use white spaces, and mm -hmm. we're still relatively early in the in in that uh, area of development. I mentioned that there is uh, some trials going on that still are using proprietary solutions, uh, but when we really uh, can count on um, popular solutions, right, that the masses use uh, is when we have economies of scale 
when the solutions are interoperable. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that only happens when you have standardized technologies. And uh, uh, in, in our uh, space, we have, of course, uh, work going on in IEEE, um, and uh, that's expected to be delivered uh, probably next year or 2014. 2014 is what IEEE is saying, but uh, that, that could potentially p be pulled in a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it's the, the first thing that needs to happen in order to really enable a market is that there be a, a standardized technology available, and we don't yet have that quite in, in um, for TV white spaces. So are you saying that um, we have development going on, but we really don't have enough of a foundation to be as clear-cut as maybe the impression is in, in the media? Uh, right, and, and we just have to be careful with the expectations mm -hmm. that we're setting for that reason. Uh, you know, if, if I take you back to around the, to the 1990s, you know, the very early beginnings of Wi-Fi, the, the first impediment that Wi-Fi faced and which we, you know, handled uh, at the time very successfully was non-interoperability, mm -hmm. right? So uh, the, the, first, uh, the first tool that we really needed to create today's Wi-Fi was to have a standard technology, and that came out of IEEE. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't reached uh, that phase with white spaces yet. Ah, uh, uh, okay, now I see now. what you're saying, right. Next, after that, then you have to ensure that the solutions are interoperable mm -hmm. um, so that uh, you could buy different brands and be assured that everything will work together, that you'll have a similar level of performance, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So um, there's certainly an element of walk before you run with uh, any of these technologies. And uh, don't get me wrong, in the Wi-Fi industry, we're very optimistic and have uh, much belief in the promise of uh, white spaces. And uh, we're going to work very hard to bring about, um, you know, that that vision, uh, and, and we're working to address some of these obstacles that I'm that I'm uh, bringing up. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you're familiar with Wilmington, North Carolina? Mm -hmm. A little bit. Right. So they were on the show um, at the beginning of the week on Monday, and would you call that then an experimental program? Because, uh, you know, they've installed equipment, they've created a network. Now it's government use only, mm -hmm. so it's not a broad across the you know, spectrum, but they're looking at you know, how the applications that they're starting to run, you know, controlling traffic lights, controlling parking meters, you know, a lot of working with inanimate objects in many respects, getting them to talk to each other or to help them manage those applications. But is, should we look at this as still more um, a, a demo, or do we look at it as version 1.1? How would you? Right. I, I would. I would characterize it as um, a, a trial. Okay. Uh, and probably what you can expect with trials like that that are happening is uh, that over time. Uh, the the applications will get proven out, mm -hmm. uh, and like you mentioned, there's much value in some of those applications that are that are being tested, and um, and so that will be very valuable in and of itself. Uh, but over time, as the technology becomes standardized and available, then that gear will probably need to be upgraded, if not replaced, with mm -hmm. uh, standard-based equipment. Right, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, Leslie Cheney, who was our guest, Describe the, their process, which you know says they rent uh, the equipment. Mm -hmm. So they're not, you know, investing in the technology on a permanent basis, but they're renting it from the company and 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 so forth. Now I understand there are 
things may be more advanced in other countries or more moved further along in other countries? Because I know one person I spoke with said that the efforts that are happening in other countries will create a level of adoption there that will help manufacturers start producing the equipment at a lesser cost. I mean, it's just you're basically scaling up. Is from your perspective or from the alliance perspective, is that uh, a fair assessment? Uh, you know, are, are are things happening faster um, in uh, I don't know Europe, Asia, wherever? It's an interesting uh, dynamic in that you know white spaces is. Uh, fundamentally a little bit different than the on-license spectrum, the true sort of on-license spectrum mm -hmm. that, um, that where Wi-Fi has traditionally played. And by virtue of that, there is a bit of a localized management that, that ha that's happening where uh, that spectrum is being treated differently in different regions. Okay. And some regions are more bullish about how they want to leverage that spectrum. Some, some uh, regions um, have much more... Um, of an understanding of the economic and public value of uh, using these frequencies for public service mm -hmm. um, to make them available to all, uh, as opposed to auctioning them off, for example. And uh, and so they're moving uh, much faster. Uh, but regardless whether that's happening in the U.S., Asia, or Europe, or wherever, uh, we still are uh, in the process of uh, working on standardizing the technologies that will run over the white spaces. So mm -hmm. in that sense, everybody's sort of on a level playing field waiting okay. for the technology to be here, to mm -hmm. get here. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, back to the point about applications and the value that folks will extract from using uh, those frequencies, uh, certainly in, in understanding those, appreciating those, and planning for what folks will want to do with those, um, the the communities that will have experimented with that earlier will have a, an upper hand in knowing exactly what they want to do with that. Mm -hmm. I, I'll just mention one more thing along those lines, uh, which is uh, probably the you know the last element that uh, anybody thinks about with um, new technologies or new service rollouts is the business case. Mm -hmm. And uh, if if you get an opportunity to kick the tire, so to speak, to, to roll something out and experiment with it and find out exactly where you can extract the most value from it, mm -hmm. um, then you have uh, a head start on how to build a business case around that. Okay. Um, we in the Wi-Fi line saw that firsthand, and I don't mind talking about how uh, for uh, for some years, going back a few years ago, we, we saw some experiments with municipal Wi-Fi Right. where folks didn't quite have a grip on what the business case was going to be and what was going to drive the ROI for those deployments. And, and so, you know, there were some failed attempts uh, at, um, at the public uh, municipal Wi-Fi rollouts. If you understand whether whether your main business case is going to be, you know, public access or uh, having a lead tenant or providing municipal services, um, you know, whatever the case is, if you understand that very clearly, and that's your starting point for the rollout, uh, you're much more likely to succeed than if you roll out that technology because it's available and then try to figure out the business case. Many times, uh, you know, that's very risky. Right. And if I look back on the municipal Wi-Fi, uh, you know, how that all unfolded, you know, people like to say that's the reason that governments shouldn't be involved in broadband and so forth. But I look back, and I, I've written actually a book on on, on the whole Muni Wi-Fi wi um, developments, starting with Philadelphia. I mean, they weren't the first, obviously, but they took it to a new level. 
And the thing is, a lot of the problems were businesses coming in, many not in business anymore, but had the bad business case. Now, in some respects, you could say that the local government was complicit in that, in that they demanded you know, a lot of freebies. They demanded digital inclusion programs. In other words, they put demands, but at the same time, there were vendors coming in saying, well, we can you know, build this network and we can support it on, on ad revenue. Mm -hmm. Is that the kind of thing that happens when the hype gets ahead of the, the realities of the technology, do you think? Well, the answer to your question is yes, right? That that's exactly the the slippery slope, and why I think we need to be cautious about expectations on on uh, white spaces, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the good news though is that um, ultimately, I, I think we've gotten to a point where whether it's white spaces or traditional Wi-Fi, um, you know, or any other broadband that we're talking about, more and more. Um, a, there's been an understanding that uh, we do need to have a grip on the ROI and the, the main objective for these services that are rolled out if, uh, if we're talking about uh, citywide uh, deployments. Um, and then B, I think more and more uh, there's been um, the, the service operators have come to embrace Wi-Fi and other technologies mm -hmm. as a way to provide, to provide access. And then finally, um, I'm really encouraged uh, um, as I go around the world by um, a change in the perception uh, of internet access and connectivity in general, where more and more communities are seeing that as a basic uh, right, as a basic service that mm -hmm. needs to be provided akin to electricity or water. Uh, when you think about how you can't get it, more and more if you want to apply for a job or you want to have access to your health record or you want to even contact your government, you have to be online. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you begin to understand. And that, by the way, that trend is just going to explode more and more as time mm -hmm. goes on. Uh, so when you appreciate that, you, you really begin to see that uh, it, it is a basic service that needs to be provided. And um, with that in mind, I think uh, that opens up a whole lot of possibilities for communities to roll out these services mm -hmm. that, that they maybe didn't have five years ago when that perception wasn't there. Okay. So if um, so, assuming that white space technology delivers as uh, promised or assumed or hoped for, uh, that you get the ability to uh, communicate data, push data through at faster speeds over longer distances and have less of a de deployment uh, cost as a result of that. What do you think coming out of the shoot will be, say, the first five or six you know, major applications? Nothing about like spectacular or, or the killer app per se, but you know, what realistically can you say will maybe drive it? Like, for example, Smart grid technology mm -hmm. has been a big driver in broadband, right? Mm -hmm. It's a single application. 99% of the population probably doesn't even know it exists, but it is a big driver that's right. moving it forward. Do you see certain types of applications in that realm that will drive? Right. Well, I think that it uh, it depends on some of the basic assumptions of um, you know what it is that's available to us when when mass rollouts begin. So if the assumption is that we'll have um, at least in the U.S., the frequencies that are available now. Mm -hmm. I, I think it'd be realistic to expect that the that the performance for um, white spaces, um, uh, for example, eight hundred two eleven if running over white spaces, it would probably be akin to you know the first versions of Wi-Fi that we had, sub ten megabit per second speeds. Mm -hmm. um, 
And for those speeds, you know, although they don't sound like uh, very fast speeds uh, for doing the kind of applications that we're used to nowadays, you could get a lot done over the, that type of speed, right? Um, not only is there, of course, the traditional email and some web applications that you could do, but I think uh, given that a lot of these might be um, uh, municipalities that roll out these services, you could do a lot of things with monitoring, troubleshooting, location-based services um, that uh, are very low bandwidth applications, but very mission critical in, mm -hmm. some, in some instances. Um, so there's a lot of promise in that, even if we don't see any more um, uh, better spectrum um, become available. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely, you see a, a point. Now, do you see a lot of these applications or let me redress it for a second. Mini Wi-Fi as a category of technology, if you will, held great promise and there was a lot of hype for the for the residential user, the average consumer, businesses, and so forth. In the end, after about two years of the hype, what ended up happening is a lot of governments ended up using Wi-Fi for government use. Mm -hmm. One, you had a smaller base, so you didn't have as many people on the network, but you, you had a workforce uh, and you had resources for whom Wi-Fi made the management of both, you know, both the human resource and the physical resources much better. That mm -hmm. justified building out networks that were basically government use only. Do you think that will replay itself here in the in the, in the white space arena, that it may very well be the government use of that technology that will provide, call it the foundation cost justification. You know, that's difficult to predict. I, I, I get a sense that um, in this area, uh, we're very much uh, going to see what we see in Wi-Fi around the world where uh, what folks decide to do in terms of rollout is very localized, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, a case in point, for example, might be uh, Taiwan, where, for example, in the city of Taipei, you, it, it, it ha legislation was passed that having access to the internet was your right, mm -hmm. and the whole city rolled out Wi-Fi uh, free of charge everywhere, mm -hmm. and, and they've had that uh, for a while. Um, and, and so that was a decision that they made there, but in other places, um, you know, Internet access or Wi-Fi access is not seen quite at that level of relevance. Um, and there may be places where uh, municipal service and city services is what drives, uh, you know, the adoption of white spaces technologies, as mm -hmm. you mentioned. I, I remember you probably, in your in your research for your book, you probably learned about Corpus Christi. In oh, yeah. Where, um, you know, I think that they kind of had a 180-degree change where they started off with the ambition of rolling out Wi-Fi uh, as a public access mm -hmm. um, service. And, and then quickly they ended up uh, realizing, A, that the business case wasn't there for public access, but uh, realizing that there was a terrific advantage to their city services, and that ended up being the focal mm -hmm. driver. And they continued on to roll, you know, rolling out Wi-Fi for that secondary service that became the primary reason to, uh, to roll it out. Right, because they, they just looked at it in combination of Earthlink stumbling and they're, you know, seeing all of these various, you know, like emergency medical mm -hmm. uh, services that could all of a sudden be rolled out. They saw those as being very valuable and, and very much worth the um, worth the efforts. Right. So b b back to your question, I mean, mm -hmm. really, I, I think there's going to be 
you know, some rural areas where you have such, you know, good spectrum availability and such need to have broadband delivered there, where you will have um, sort of the vision that is currently being talked a lot about, i.e. broadband to the rural area for, mm -hmm. you know, the masses uh, delivered. And uh, there's going to be other places where, you know, there will be some different reason to roll it out. And it probably many places where it won't be rolled out. So right. it, it we'll have a mixture. Mm -hmm. That uh, that should all turn out to be uh, fairly interesting to watch. At this stage, um, would you encourage more communities to do what Wilmington has done, which is basically, you know, take the step forward? I mean, Wilmington obviously isn't rolling it out to everyone. They're rolling it out as a government application. But at the same time, they are, I think, uh, pushing the boundaries of, you know, what they can do with it. You know, they, they have protected themselves by renting equipment versus buying equipment. Right. Uh, they, they seem to have scoped out their applications and the, the potential impact of those applications. Um, you know, and, and they're writing up the playbook. I mean, they're, they're you know, saying right. that they're, they're doing the documentation of, you know, what will may eventually become best practices. Um, is a time. I mean, should should communities do, especially if the if these communities may be near where they're building out middle mile fiber networks, you know, mm -hmm. all these government stimulus uh, broadband projects, does that make it maybe even more, you know, maybe a safer environment in which to go out and experiment with this? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's dangerous to kind of provide a one size fits all kind of recommendation. True. Because um, I think each community is going to have to make these determinations based on their own circumstances, uh, and uh, white spaces is one option. You know, certainly there's other options even today of mm -hmm. technologies that they can roll out, and um, you know the capital investments, the return on investment, the business case, the long term, you know, reason for the deployment. Well, all these things are factors that need to be considered. Um, one of the variables that's different for white spaces that you don't have for some of the other options, uh, you know, certainly are that the technology is early. It's not just standardized, mm -hmm. and it may change. So, uh, you know, it's it's. Um, I, I think there's certainly going to be some early adopter communities like Wilmington, mm -hmm. and uh, if they understand exactly, you know, why it is that this is their best option, you know, they should ex they should execute on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, I fall short of giving a recommendation for for everyone. Well, sure. I, I, I was more, you know, do you think that it might be <coughs> safe enough that other people could, you know, dip their toe in the water and, you know, I mean, because my my inclination is that. Um, you know there there are at least there's trials going on which mm -hmm. provides some some amount of feedback, but also you know if you're if you're having middle mile infrastructure built nearby, you know we still have to solve the last mile mm -hmm. um, question right because there there are people talking about you know we're building this network but we don't have service providers to provide the last mile service so maybe certain you know entrepreneurial communities might see this and go well maybe we should take that plunge right. Yeah, I mean, for the, the the good news is that there are communities like Wilmington and a mm -hmm. few others that um, you know perhaps could make their experience uh, ex available. You know, those lessons that they learned, the reasons that they chose to go that route. Mm -hmm. um, and my um, my experience has been that those communities that are experimenting um, are very eager to talk about that with others mm -hmm. and share their uh, their you know their learnings. Uh, so, you know, I would just encourage those folks who are considering that to have that dialogue with those who have gone through that path. Mm -hmm. 
Now, will this is we call it our closing question? Um, will Wi-Fi Alliance take something of the uh, leadership role with both uh, trying to influence policy that's favorable to white space development, but also getting people to understand and adopt this as things become more standardized. Uh, what, what role are you guys going to take on in terms of right. leadership? The, the vision of the Wi-Fi Alliance is seamless connectivity, mm -hmm. and we've been very successful in showing that, that we're committed to that vision. For example, we're one of the technologies that most elegantly coexists with every other technology, mm -hmm. uh, whether it be licensed or unlicensed. Um, and we have a, <coughs> a vision of a successful white spaces rollout. Uh, it, it is likely that we'll play a role in that space and that we'll bring our experience and our know-how uh, into white spaces. And, and so um, we would, uh, you know, we're, we're committed to it and we, we, we plan to continue to look at um, what is needed to make that uh, part of the ecosystem successful. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned today some of the shortcomings that we see, uh, particularly in North America. Uh, I'd be remiss not to mention that uh, you know those dynamics are different in, in different regions of the world. Mm -hmm. But certainly here, it'd be good to have uh, better uh, spectrum availability. And uh, we're encouraged by uh, the schedule that's projected for the delivery of uh, standard-based technology. And once that's here, uh, you can expect the Wi-Fi Alliance to be committed to delivering interoperable solutions uh, so that our industry can play uh, in white spaces uh, just as well as we have in 2.4 and 5 year advance. Mm -hmm. So bottom line, people who are interested in you know, things from the policy perspective should keep tabs on what uh, Wi-Fi Alliance is doing and where possible lend a hand, become active, become partners, you know, there are probably a dozen different ways, but basically take that that effort to become more familiar with Wi-Fi lines and become uh, aligned with what what some of the activities that you guys are doing. Absolutely, it's uh, you know the Wi-Fi lines. Uh, many sources, including MIT and Network World, have, have said that we're one of the most effective collaboration uh, uh, for out there or forum out there, and and um, we'll continue to to try to be very effective in bringing about uh, a, a successful white spaces uh, community. Mm -hmm. Well, great. I want to thank you for being uh, one of our guests today, and, uh, and the information has been extremely valuable, and I wish you much uh, continued success as you guys move, you know, Wi-Fi and unlicensed spectrum applications and stuff through. Thank you, Craig. Much My appreciated. Pleasure. My pleasure. Take care. And thank you to our audience today uh, for attending another show. Uh, be with us next week. Uh, thank you also to Hiawatha Broadband Communications, our sponsor. And uh, see, next week we'll be back uh, discussing some digital inclusion issues, uh, strategies, and so forth. So I uh, hope to see you all next week. Take care. Goodbye.